0: We hope you're enjoying the Mutual Audio Network. Stick around, there's much more to come.
1: The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended.
2: This is Captain Radio welcoming you to the Transcontinental Terror Express Classic for 2022, a terrifying journey across the borders of horror and down through the Valley of Nightmares. On our journey this evening we will hear and enjoy, in startling acoustic excellence, both new horror productions as well as classics from the Sonic Society era of transcontinental terror. We begin our journey, appropriately, with a very unusual production, Day of the Martians adapted by Steve Bellinger and based upon H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. However, our writer-producer transposes the setting to late 70s Chicago, increasing the suspense, fear and horror as the powerful U.S. military of the era remains impotent to stop the ruthless Martians. Steve's production of this classic sci-fi horror tale, to me, is a milestone of sorts. It was created by an amateur audio drama enthusiast at a time when American radio drama seemed about to be abandoned. Instead, Day of the Martians possibly represents the beginning of the modern, independent audio drama era, now thriving around the globe. I'll let Steve himself finish.
3: Back in 1968, I was a starry-eyed college student with a lifelong love of radio and radio drama. I was listening to the 30th anniversary broadcast of Orson Welles' 1938 classic War of the Worlds. It scared the heck out of me. When it was over, I made the decision to make a modern version of this story with my hometown of Chicago as the setting. In the late 1970s, I built an audio studio in my apartment using reel-to-reel tape decks and with the help of some very talented actors, produced a few original radio plays. Once I felt I had perfected my craft sufficiently, I created The Day of the Martians. It was first heard in 1978, the 40th anniversary of the original program on a pseudo-network of college radio stations that, together, covered the entire city. It has since been heard on other public radio stations, presented online, and played in front of live audiences. So turn down the lights, sit back and relax, and enjoy what I still consider to be my magnum radio opus, The Day of the Martians.
0: In the autumn of 1938, the CBS Radio Network presented a special edition of Orson Welles' weekly program, The Mercury Theater on the Air. This time, it was a radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, presented in a uniquely realistic fashion. So realistic, in fact, that an incredible panic gripped the nation as thousands ran from their homes and prepared to fight the alien invaders. At the conclusion of the play, Mr. Wells, without apology, assured listeners that it was nothing more than a fictional holiday offering. After all, it was Halloween the program you are about to hear is a readaptation of this story produced in commemoration of the fortieth anniversary of the original broadcast there is one basic difference however the first play took place in nineteen thirty eight in new england the setting of today's story is here and now Stephen A. Bellinger Productions presents Day of the Martians, a radio re-adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, featuring the voices of Jim Keith, David Whiskeyman, Neil Boyle, Susan Sagan, and Ed Wallin.
1: There is no longer any question as to the existence of intelligent life on other worlds. The once raging controversy over the possibility of extraterrestrials visiting the earth has been silenced forever by the facts of history. And we, as humans, have been humbled by the unsettling realization that we are not the ultimate beings in the universe, that we remain masters of our own world only by the grace of God. As we blindly went to and fro, our minds clouded with our individual petty concerns, we could not have known that across the void of some 40 million miles we were being watched, examined, studied by minds infinitely superior to ours, minds cold, calculating, and unsympathetic, gazing upon our world with envious eyes as they drew their plans against us. In the 78th year of the 20th century, there was a cautious air of hope. Inflation was slowing down, new treatments for cancer were being found, and for the first time in written history, there was a true chance for lasting worldwide peace. Then, inexplicably, an atmospheric disturbance interfered with television and radio communications to a point of literally shutting down most stations an estimated six million Chicagoans tuned in their radios listening to the only station on the air.
4: In love, it was you for no one else but my heart feels the warmth of you. Love me once and love me wise. Make your poor heart realize that I'm the guy the Lord
2: had created
4: for you. Love me once and love me wise. Make my life your precious prize. For I'm the God the Lord had created
5: for you. Mm, I'm the God the Lord had
2: created for you.
5: That's Teddy Corpus with a song called Love Me Once. Three minutes after the hour, I'm Jack Woods with you on this very strange October evening. You know, I got a report a few minutes ago, and it seems our audience has increased by 230% since about 4.14 this afternoon. And that's mainly because of that TV and radio blackout. Hey, who said a blackout can't be good? Seems that uh, we're the only station that's on the air. Right now, here's a weather update from our very own Joanne Debs, our weather lady.
6: Weather person.
5: Okay, sorry. How about uh, meteorologist?
6: That's better.
5: Joanne, I know you've been working on a report for us since late this afternoon. Do you have any clues yet as to what may be causing this communications blackout?
6: Well, Jack, you might remember earlier this year there were a couple of major solar flares that were expected to cause a lot of problems with radio communications.
5: Yeah, and as I remember, they didn't cause many problems at all. I, for one, was disappointed. <laughs>
6: Well, there has been reports of solar activity, but it seems unlikely that it could cause all of this. There are theories being tossed around. I'll have a full report later.
5: Thanks so much, Joanne. We'll have more on that as details become available. You know, we received many calls about the blackout, but would you believe that over a third of them were requests for this song? I would, because it's going to be a hit. This is New Life Together by Francesca.
4: Find the things we'd never had before
5: interrupt this program to bring you a special news report. Now our meteorologist Miss Joanne Debs.
6: Thanks, Jack. We just received a report from Dearborn Observatory at Northwestern University in Evanston. At approximately 4:17 this afternoon, roughly the same time as the radio interference began, a series of bright explosions took place on the surface of the planet Mars. The sighting was made by Dr. Richard Pearson, professor of astrophysics, who could find no connection between the Martian fireworks and the radio blackout. Also, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration reports that the two Viking spacecrafts that landed on Mars several months ago registered high-intensity seismic shocks, again coinciding with the radio interference and the sighting made at Northwestern. We're sending our reporter Carl Phillips to the Dearborn Observatory, and we'll have a direct report later. Now, back to our program.
5: We now have a direct report from Carl Phillips at the Dearborn Observatory on the campus of Northwestern University. Carl?
7: This is Carl Phillips at the Dearborn Observatory on the Northwestern University Evanston campus. Next to me is Dr. Richard Pearson, professor of astrophysics and noted astronomer. First, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to say that this is not like any observatory I've ever seen. The huge telescope is upstairs from us. I can see it through openings in the ceiling. The room we're in now looks more like a television studio.
1: Dr. Pearson, could you explain the purpose of all the TV screens? Uh, Certainly. This system is computer-controlled to allow accurate tracking and constant monitoring of astronomical events. That's how we spotted the disturbance on Mars. How is that? Just a moment. I'll show you. All right.
7: Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Pearson is at the controls of a videotape deck.
1: I'm uh, rewinding a section uh, recorded earlier. You see, we were, as a part of a class project, observing Mars. We set up the COS, the Computer Observation System, which automatically follows objects in space as we program it.
7: I see. So you can see the images on the television screens, correct? Uh,
1: Precisely. The image is picked up by a TV camera and is videotaped. This unit uh, continuously samples the video signal, and when there's a change in the picture, it's picked up and the time and tape index prints out on the console, here.
7: Very impressive. So you don't have to be here to see the events.
1: No. In fact, there was no one here this afternoon when it all happened. But we can watch the whole thing on television. Uh, Just watch that screen.
7: All right. It's really unfortunate, ladies and gentlemen, that we can't have live television cameras here. This is really something to see. On a seven-foot screen, I see a picture of Mars, an incredibly sharp picture.
1: It's computer-enhanced. Doctor, what are all those stripes that seem to crisscross the surface? Not canals, as was once believed by those who thought Mars to be inhabited by intelligent life. Uh, They're most likely natural formations of some sort. You don't believe that intelligent life exists on other worlds? Oh, I'm certain that there are civilizations on other planets. I just don't believe that Mars is one of them. The Viking program so far has failed to detect the most rudimentary forms of life, so it's very doubtful that any higher form of life could ever evolve from... Excuse me, Doctor. What was that? Ah, the explosions are starting. It's amazing. A series of bright flashes
7: of light, about one every two or three seconds. Any idea what caused them? Well,
1: the Vikings picked up seismic shock waves at the same time, so I'd suspect some sort of volcanic activity. Those tiny flashes you see... To be visible at this distance would have to each be equivalent to a large atomic bomb, so it would have to be extremely violent activity. Uh, Dr. Pearson? Uh, Excuse me. Yes, what is
7: it? Oh, thank you. Dr. Pearson has been called away. Someone is handing him a note. Let me remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that we are bringing you this report from the Dearborn Observatory at Northwestern University in Evanston. Here's Dr. Pearson again. I have a note from the UFO Center. Oh, may I read it? Certainly. Thank you. It is a handwritten note from the UFO Center here on campus. They report that about ten minutes ago, a bright object was sighted in the sky that appeared to fall on a farm just south of Elgin. They're inviting us to join them to investigate. What might this be?
1: They probably suspect a meteor of unusual size. Its appearance now, just a coincidence, could even be a downed aircraft that became confused in the radio silence. In any case, we will proceed to Elgin right away. Thank you, Dr.
7: Pearson. We hope to join Dr. Pearson in Elgin and resume our report from there. For now, this is Carl Phillips returning you to our studios.
5: Thanks, Carl. We now return to our
0: regular programming. You are listening to Steve Bellinger's production of Day of the Martians, a radio readaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds.
5: We'll have that report from Carl Phillips in just a moment. First, a brief report from Joanne Debs.
6: Thank you, Jack. I have done a little research on this radio interference, and that's just what it is, some sort of interference. Data from radio telescopes and satellites across the country suggests that the problem is not atmospheric per se. It seems that we are being bombarded with very wide-band, high-energy electromagnetic waves. Dr. Charles Shaw professor of physics at the Illinois Institute of Technology, had this to say in a telephone interview taped earlier.
8: We were demonstrating our radio telescope equipment to some students when we were delused with a stream of high-energy radio noise that sent most of our measuring equipment off their scales. Further investigation showed that it covered most of the radio spectrum with little holes here and there at a few frequencies, which is why some radio communication is still possible.
6: Apparently, our operating frequency falls within one of those holes. Dr. Shaw theorized that the source of the noise might be a pulsar or some other natural source of radio energy that underwent some dramatic change, such as an explosion or or something, and, and what we're getting now is the radio shockwave.
5: Thank you, Joanne. We now have that report from Carl Phillips in Elgin. Carl? Thank you, Jack. I am standing in a field
7: on the Gilbert Farm in Elgin, Illinois. We made the trip from Evanston in ten minutes by helicopter. I've only been here for a couple of minutes and... That must be it. Yes, that's the thing we came to see. Dr. Pearson thought it might be a meteor, but this doesn't look like any meteor I've ever seen. They're usually rocks or stones. This thing is smooth and round, like a cylinder. I'd say about 30 or 40 yards in diameter. Again, it's a shame there is no television. I'm trying to describe the scene as best I can. I'm perhaps two hundred feet from the thing. It's resting in a huge pit, a pit or crater, and seems to be three or four stories tall. Of course, I don't know how deep the pit is. The thing might be much taller. There are bright spotlights on it from some fire engines, and I can I can see it really gleaming in the light. There are splinters all over the ground. It must have hit a tree when it landed. The police have set up a blockade around it to keep the curious away. Excuse me, uh, sir, sir, are you Mr. Gilbert? Ye- yes, sir. Yes, sir. Would you would you give us a couple of minutes, please? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have here Mr. Tom Gilbert, owner of the farm here. Perhaps he can give us an eyewitness account. Mr. Gilbert?
8: Yes, sir. Where were you, sir, when this thing fell? Inside, listening to the radio. You know, the damn TV don't work no more. Yes, sir. When did you first see it? Well, first off, I heard it. Heard his whistling sound. Then I felt something smack the ground damn near knocked me out of my chair. Next thing I knew, all you people were trampling my field, looking at that blasted thing. Oh, you seem a little upset by all this. Damn right. That was my favorite apple tree.
7: Thank you, Mr. Gilbert. Uh,
8: You're welcome. Now will you people get that thing the hell out of my field?
7: Thank you very, very much, Mr. Gilbert. Well, there, there isn't much going on. Everyone seems to be standing around waiting. I guess they don't know what to do exactly. Oh, here's Dr. Pearson. Dr. Pearson. Dr. Pearson? Yes, Mr. Phillips. Now that you've got a closer look at it, sir, what do you think? Is it some kind
1: of meteor? I don't know what to think. It's not like any meteorite I've ever seen. This thing is metallic, though not at all like any metal I've ever seen. Friction with the atmosphere usually tears holes in meteors. This thing is smooth and perfect, as if it were made by... Wait! Wait,
7: hold just a minute! Ladies and gentlemen, this is fantastic. The end of the thing, the top, is beginning to move. It's rotating. It seems to be screwing off like the, like the cap of a bottle. It's off. The, the top is off. And, oh my god. There's something coming out. A huge, humped shape, red, deep red color, round like a ball, with eyes, two big luminous yellow eyes. And mouth. A disgusting looking mouth. Quivering with, with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. Now there's something else, thin, thin snake-like things slithering out. There's another, another, and another. They look like tentacles to me. This is so incredible, I can't believe it. I can hardly describe it. I don't have the words. It's definitely red in color. No, 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 magenta is more like it, I guess. It seemed to move with great difficulty, as if it were weighed down by gravity. The crowd is getting braver. They're moving in for a closer look. The police are chasing them back. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going have to sign
5: off for a minute to move to a better spot. Please stand by. I'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been bringing you live coverage of the incredible events at Elgin, Illinois. We'll rejoin Carl Phillips in a moment. First, a brief report from Dr. Shaw at IIT. It seems that the radio interference is getting stronger and is approaching dangerous levels. He suggests that citizens stay inside if possible. Buildings made of steel and concrete would offer the best protection from the increasing radiation, which could cause cancer in some people. A report from the Bell System state that many long-distance lines are out and satellite communications have been totally disrupted. Local calls are going through, but they suggest that you limit your calls to emergencies, as most switchboards are jammed. We now have the rest of that Carl Phillips report from Elgin, Illinois. Carl?
7: Hello, this is Carl Phillips again. I'm standing near a barbed wire fence on the Gilbert Farm in Elgin, Illinois. The weird creature is still peering out of the cylinder, looking around. On the far side of the pit... I can make out a group of people chanting something that I I can't make out. They're carrying signs, Welcome to the planet Earth. Fanatics of some sort, I guess. Wait, there's some activity near the pit. It's Dr. Pearson talking to a couple of policemen. Now the two officers are approaching the thing, carrying a white flag of truce. Hold it. Something is happening. An oval shape, rising out of the cylinder, suspended on a long, flexible arm, looks like... a. Maybe it's a camera. Now now the the lens seems to be glowing, glowing a bright red. There's a beam of light coming from it, striking the men head on. They're turning into flame. Fire, fire everywhere. It's spraying the area. Everything is
8: burning. Trees, cars, people, burning. It's coming this way. Melting the fence, coming this way.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to a live report of the unbelievable events in Elgin, Illinois. Our communications with Carl Phillips in Elgin have been interrupted, and we are in the process of trying to reestablish contact. Meanwhile, because of communications breakdown, the staff and management of this station, realizing that we are now the only public source of news and information in this area, are making special arrangements to keep you informed of the unusual events taking place here and elsewhere. Direct links via high-quality phone lines will connect us with the state and local government offices and military operations. And our engineers are now hooking up a special shortwave receiver so that we can relay directly any important transmissions to you. We ask that you refrain from calling this station and police and other emergency services, except in dire emergency. We must keep these lines open. We suggest that you stay by your radios for reports and any instructions in the event of any... Just a moment, please. I have just received a report from Elgin. About 350 persons, civilians, police, and National Guardsmen lay dead in a field near Elgin, Illinois, all burned to death by a mysterious weapon fired from that strange cylinder. The creatures that appeared in the cylinder have sealed themselves inside and are making no attempts to hinder the efforts of firemen trying to extinguish the flames that have already destroyed hundreds of acres of farmland. I understand we now have established contact with a survivor of the Elgin incident by telephone. Dr. Richard Pearson calling us from a farmhouse in Elgin. Dr. Pearson. Hello? Hello? Yes? Dr. Pearson, can you briefly tell us what happened?
1: I'll try. After the creatures made their appearance from the vehicle, some police officers approached them with a white flag of truce, offering friendship when an odd device rose from the vehicle and sprayed the area with a high-intensity light beam that set fire to anything in its path.
5: Dr. Pearson, you called this thing a vehicle?
1: Yes. I now believe the cylinder to be, incredibly enough, a spacecraft. And these beings, extraterrestrials.
5: Are there any theories as to what their purpose here is?
1: Hard to say use of weapons suggests an unfriendly purpose, but perhaps we frightened them. Perhaps our presence, the people, the flashing lights, and our own show of weapons made them feel threatened, and they felt the need to protect themselves.
5: Dr. Pearson, can you tell us a little more about the weapon that they used?
1: My guess is that it is a very efficient laser ray. It can apparently produce a highly concentrated beam of coherent light, the results of which can be quite devastating.
5: Thank you, Dr. Pearson. You've been through quite an ordeal. Get some rest, okay? Yes, thank you. That was Dr. Richard Pearson, a survivor of the Elgin catastrophe. Reports are pouring in from the Elgin area. The fires that threatened the countryside are now under control, and the cylinder remains sealed and silent. I'm handed another note, a brief statement that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in an Elgin hospital. A special unit of the Illinois National Guard has been dispatched to the scene, and Bill Desmond, a reporter from another local station, will give us a report. In about 15 minutes, the President of the United States will address the nation in a special emergency network hookup, and we hope to bring that to you. I am told that our link with Bill Desmond has been established.
0: Go ahead, Bill. This is Bill Desmond standing in what's left of the Gilbert Farm in Elgin, Illinois. The area has been all but leveled by the devastating fire that's still burning to the south fanned by strong winds. We are about 100 yards from the cylinder and about 500 men armed with machine guns, bazookas and tanks are surrounding it. It looks odd in the bright spotlight shrouded in the smoke from the smoldering ashes. Next to me is Commander Henry Smith of the Illinois National Guard. Commander, what is your plan of action? Right now, to wait. Our job is twofold,
8: to keep civilians away and and to destroy it if it makes any move. That is, if it tries to attack.
0: Then you see no problem in handling another attack.
8: No, all cause for alarm, if there was any, is gone now. No way this thing could hold up under fire. Wait! What was that? What, sir? <laughs> oh, nothing. Must have been a shadow. As you can see, the men are poised and prepared for attack at any time now. Wait! There was no shadow! The damn thing's moving!
0: There, there's activity in the pit. The cylinder seems to be rocking slowly. Colonel, Colonel, over here! They're giving the order to attack. I can see the men moving to. Hold it. Hold it. The cylinder is moving. It's rising, standing, rearing up on legs on some huge metal framework. Must be 10 stories high. Hold on!
5: Ladies and gentlemen, as you have just heard, our contact with Bill Desmond has also been broken. All that has been seen and heard tonight seemed to lead to the unavoidable conclusion that those strange beings that landed in the Elgin farmlands tonight are the spearhead of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle that took place at the Gilbert farm in Elgin resulted in one of the most startling defeats suffered by an army in history. Over 500 National Guardsmen armed with tanks, rifles, and bazookas against the single Martian fighting machine. Only 10 known survivors. The rest were either trampled to death by the metal feet of the monster or burned to ashes by the laser ray. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio. The Dearborn Observatory in Evanston reports several more explosions on Mars at regular intervals. It is assumed that the reinforcements are coming. The UFO Center at Northwestern received a number of calls of a sighting in Waukegan, Illinois. Assuming that this is another Martian craft, the report was relayed to a nearby Army post where heavy artillery has been dispatched. We hope to have a report from there shortly. A speech from the President may not be coming as more problems with communications are developing, and there are indications that an attack on Washington, D.C. has already taken place.
0: Please stand by. You are listening to Steve Bellinger's production of Day of the Martians. A radio re adaptation of H. G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And now, back to Day of the Martians.
5: A report just in from Milwaukee. A police helicopter has spotted a third Martian machine in the woods, a few miles south of the city, traveling at a high speed with population fleeing ahead of it. A squadron of jet fighters have been launched from Glenview to intercept it. We now have a live report from Waukegan, where troops with heavy artillery are preparing to destroy a cylinder that landed only minutes ago. I don't know who is giving this report. Hello? Are you there?
4: Uh, yes, I'm in Waukegan on Pine Street. It's an incredible scene. I'm on the roof of a deserted house about half a block from where the cylinder fell. It landed square on a house, totally demolishing it. If anybody was inside, my God, they're dead now. A couple of blocks to my right, heavy artillery is being set up in a small schoolyard, and I can see soldiers evacuating houses farther up the street. It's pretty quiet right now. The artillery men seem to be just now loading up. The cylinder is just sitting there. No sign of life inside. I can hear the commander giving the orders. They're going to try to destroy it before it can set up its weapon. There's the first shot. A miss. Leveled somebody's garage. They're getting ready to fire again. A hit. A direct hit. Smoke clearing. It barely dented the cylinder casing. What's that thing made of? Hold it. Something's happening. A huge metal arm coming from one side of the cylinder. A fog. A black fog coming out of the arm. A smokescreen, maybe. The soldiers are putting on gas masks. All I have is this handkerchief. I hope you can still understand me. They're loading up again. And wait. They're falling! The men are falling like flies! The fog must be poison, penetrating the glass and rising. Coming this
2: way! Hey! Let's get the hell out of here!
1: some strange weapon that demolished an entire farming community. Some type of light beam was used to set fire to everything within miles. Before telephone trunk lines failed, there were reports of these invaders falling all over Europe. The Ministry of Defense is now of the opinion that this is not an attack from the Soviets or the Red Chinese, as was thought earlier. In an effort to reach more people with the news of this invasion, we shall sign off for approximately 15 minutes to make our adjustments in our transmitters to increase our range. This is the BBC World Service. Please stand by.
3: Breaker
5: 1-9, breaker 1-9 for that one lady Jane, come on. You got the one lady Jane, is that the Silver Surfer? That's a big 10-4 there, lady Jane. Hey, you okay over there? I've been trying to reach you all day. The phones don't work no more. I'm lucky to be getting through all this noise. Come on back. Yeah, I've been listening to the radio. All packed up
4: to get the heck out of here if we have to. Ten four.
5: Me too. Our power's been acting up. It's going on and off all day. Here they spotted one of those things over there in that one Skokie town, and I want to wait and hear which way they're coming so I know which way...
2: Give me a ten
4: nine on that Silver Surfer. you breaking up. Silver Surfer, come on back. Billy? Billy? You there? What's wrong? KNJ 4376. KNJ 4376 to KNJ 4432. Billy, can you hear me?
8: I'm speaking to you from the roof of the John Hancock Center in Chicago, Illinois. The noise you hear is the air raid sirens warning the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. At last report, Two and a half million people have fled the city in the northern suburbs, heading south. I can see the outer drive, hopelessly jammed with unmoving southbound traffic in all lanes. Michigan Avenue is a mass of cars and people. It's like a scene from wartime Asia. People plodding along the sidewalks, pulling wagons and shopping carts with their belongings, past the now-closed shops along the Magnificent Mile. Most of those shops have been emptied by looters. I can see the boats loading with people pulling out from the Oak Street beach. A message is being handed to me. Martian cylinders are falling all over England, Europe, Canada, Russia, South America They seem to be timed at space This may well be the last broadcast I'll stay here till the end, nowhere else to go Can't make much difference where I am When? Just a moment The enemy is in sight now Five gigantic machines moving with incredible speed They must be covering several blocks with each step One is making its way in the lake along the shore A boat laden with people washed away in its wake The people see them now. Panic. They're running for the lake, dropping in like rats. The Martians have stopped just a few blocks north about Astor Street. They rise like a bizarre new line of high-rises. A metal arm raised. Fog. Thick black fog coming out. The wind is blowing it south. This is the end now. It reaches the people below. They're dropping in their tracks, trying to outrun it, but it's no use. I can see them falling to the ground, choking. Coming this way, about about a block away. So thick I, I can't see through it. Closer, about 50 feet. It's like night had suddenly fallen over the city. Yeah, There's a burning sensation in my lungs. I can't breathe.
4: KNJ 4376, KNJ 4376 calling anybody? KNJ
2: 4376, is anybody on the air? Anybody? Please answer.
1: As I sit, alone, in this desolate, burned-out cornfield writing these notes, I'm haunted by the thought that I may be the last living human on this earth. I reassure myself that no matter how complete the Martians' attempt at extermination, there must be, somewhere, of the millions of men, women, and children that once populated this earth, there must be survivors. Dare I hope that my wife, my friends, all those that once made up my comfortable, once secure life, dare I hope that they are among them? I must not dwell on that. I must keep these records objective. They may be needed to fill the gaps in written history in the future, if indeed there is a future for mankind. It also gives me something to do to help me maintain what's left of my sanity. Using the sun as a compass, I spend the days walking to the southeast, toward Chicago. I can't say why. Morbid curiosity, perhaps. If there are any survivors, they must be there. With so many hiding places, surely some managed to escape the Martians' wrath. A fine... Black dust litters the ground. At first, I thought it to be ash, but I am now miles from where there was any burning. It doesn't look like ash under close inspection. Perhaps a simple taste test. No, no, better collect a sample and save it for possible analysis later. On the third day, I stumble upon the Kennedy Expressway. I used to hate the thing. All the noise, traffic, and pollution. Now, I feel as if I found an old lost friend. A friend that would lead me right into the city. I climb the ramp to walk on the elevated pavement, not prepared for what I find. A sea of still automobiles pointed in all directions, many mangled in collisions with Human corpses beside them sprawled on the ground, ripening in the sun. I turn and run to the street below. I can follow it from down here. Later, I come upon a strange cloud of black fog, a black square hovering over some mobile homes. I spot a Martian machine above the treetops. Quickly, I jump behind some bushes and watch as one of its metal arms rises and sprays the air with a jet of steam that causes the fog to solidify into minute, dust-like particles falling to the ground like a bizarre black snow. Astonished, I take the sample of dust collected early out of my pocket and throw it away. I've been watching the Martians for several hours, afraid to move lest I attract their attention. I'll stay hidden until darkness permits my continuing. My fear of these creatures greater than ever. For now I know why, of all the countless people massacred by the Martians, so few bodies lay in the streets and fields. With each step I scan the horizon, Ready to throw myself to the ground at the first sign of a Martian, I have seen them feed. It's been a day and a half since I've eaten. I have passed many potential meals in abandoned houses and grocery stores, either because of the ominous black dust that covered everything or because I was sickened at the sight of partially consumed bodies. Now I'm weakening with hunger nuts and berries I had in the woods were not enough. As I approach the city, I expect to find more stores. Some of them should be safe. My prayers are answered. A little supermarket in the town I can't identify. No black dust or dead bodies anywhere. I go inside. Cans on the shelves. Not many, but in them I find meat and fruit. Food. Finally, I gulp it down. Uh, Spam never tasted so good. What was that? A noise from the front near the checkout counter. Who's there? I shout, half-hoping to get no response. A shadow rises from behind the cash register. A man. A man in a tattered army uniform carrying a large knife. Don't move, man. I mean you no know harm. I just came in for something to eat. I'll I'll leave. No, you don't have to leave.
8: You can stay. You're the first live person I've seen in a week. I ain't gonna hurt you. All right. Where are you from? Evanston originally. I'd just walked from Elgin. Elgin, damn! I was up there that first night, fighting them things. Like something out of a monster movie. I was there too. It was horrible. I fear it's the end of the human race. Nah, man. We'll bounce back. We got to. We just got to get organized. Get our act together. Getting so now all the Martian got to do is go a couple of miles to find a bunch of people running around all confused. A spray of that poison gas and bam, lunch.
1: But what can
8: we do? All we need is to find a few good men. No weaklings, no flabby out of shape. Like me? Nah, you sound like an educated man, a smart man. We're going to need people like you to learn us the way. Learn the way? Yeah, all we got to do is get one. Just one of those machines. Can you see that? A machine like that? With that laser ray left and right, and no Martians in it, but men. Men that learn how. A chance to fight back. More than that, we turn it on the Martians. Wipe them out. Then we turn it on people. Bring the world to its knees. Hell, they're half feet already. That's your plan? Yeah, and I'm giving you a chance to... Hey, hey, where are you going?
1: Not to your world. Goodbye. For two days after my encounter with the stranger, I wander southeast to Chicago, unsure of my progress until, finally, I recognize the once bustling communities of Rogers Park, Edgewater, and Uptown. Now they are silent. Their residents, long since evacuated, or consumed. On Sheridan Road near Wilson Avenue, resting against a building, a bicycle. I climb on it and decide to ride the rest of the way. Why I felt compelled to get to the loop, I'll never know. I can't imagine why I'd be in any hurry. I turn east at Montrose and over to the park. I'm startled by the number of cars on Lakeshore Drive. Thousands. There are cars on the bike paths in Lincoln Park. I have to weave left and right to avoid them. I see the colorful trees of autumn contrasted by the blackened scars left by the terrible laser blast. In the distance, I see the Hancock Center and the Ritz-Carlton appearing unscarred from my vantage point. At North Avenue, a collision with a large stone renders the bike useless, so I proceed on foot. To my left, more evidence of Martian presence. A huge, round depression in the sand, three feet deep and several feet in diameter. A footprint left by one of the awesome machines. With a tinge of fear, I realize the potential danger, and I dash across the drive where the trees, bushes, and tall buildings might offer hiding places should a Martian come along. In the gutters, there are traces of the black dust that I now know once was poison fog. I can imagine the horrible death of the thousands who must have been here when the Martians came. As I cross the Michigan Avenue Bridge, I see more of the same black dust floating in clumps in the river. To the west, the Dearborn Street Bridge ripped from its foundations. Strange. All the damage I had seen in the city so far was just that one bridge. All the buildings, streets, even the old water tower, symbolic survivor of an earlier disaster over a century ago, stood intact. It's becoming obvious that the Martians' purpose is to eliminate the people only. Perhaps they might have use for the buildings and structures. Could this be the reason for their merciless, pernicious attack on us? Is this why they want to take our world away from us? Could it be that their planet is crowded, polluted, devoid of resources? Perhaps our careless consumption gave them the illusion of plenty. (laughs) If that be the case, we may be witnesses to the most macabre joke ever imagined. I. Pass an increasing number of automobiles in a frozen traffic jam, some of them crushed flat, probably under the metal feet of the Martians. I make my way past a seemingly endless parade of empty shops and restaurants, most with windows smashed and shelves cleared. South, past the Art Institute, I meet up with a pack of wild dogs. I stop cold and watch silently as they scurried across the street, growling angrily at me. One of them has a piece of brown meat in his jaws. Perhaps they think I'd be a fresh competitor. I wait and let them pass. I have no desire to challenge them. What's that? In the sky, above the almost naked trees in Grant Park, a flock of black birds circling. My curiosity is getting the better of me. I find myself running towards them across 11th Street. Suddenly, a flash in the treetops. The gleaming, cowlish head of one of the Martian machines. Terrified, I throw myself into some bushes and hold my breath. God, I hope he didn't see me. But wait. The machine is silent. Motionless. Cautiously move along on hands and knees and peek through the bushes and see one of the Martians hanging limp from his machine while the black birds tear bits of brown flesh from its dead body. The last entry was made almost a month ago now. I read in this morning's paper that preliminary results of autopsies on the dead aliens show that they died of severe infection an infection caused by viruses believed to be associated with a disease that we call the common cold. It seems so strange now as I sit here in my office here on campus with the now world-famous Dearborn Observatory visible from my window. With all our technology and military might, the power to destroy our world many times over, it was a virus, something even smaller than a germ, an organism that we've tried to exterminate for generations, the humblest creature on the face of the earth. It was a virus that preserved man's place as master of his world. Shall we learn from our experience? Will we now show more respect for our world and for our fellow inhabitants? Do we now realize the fragility of our existence Will we cherish and try to conserve our resources? I look out at the roads and highways and see all the dead, smashed cars have been replaced by new ones belching hydrocarbons into the air. I read of hordes of people crowding museums to gape at the Martians' machines on display. And the nations of the world in bitter dispute over who shall own laser weapons. I fear the worse is yet to come.
0: Hello, I'm Steve Bellinger. Perhaps the greatest misconception shared by all humans is the belief that we are God's greatest creation, the ultimate beings of the universe. We marvel at our intellect and our ability to communicate with accuracy. In doing so, we ignore our evolutionary relatives, such as the whale and the dolphin, whose intellect may indeed equal or surpass ours. Because we are unable to communicate with them, we assume inferiority on their part. All available information does tend to support our thinking. Of course, we once thought that the sun and the moon were the entire universe, and we also thought that the earth was flat. We could indeed be the ultimate of God's creatures, but then again, maybe not. We have been wrong before. Thank you for listening. And now our cast in order of appearance. Dr. Pearson was played by Jim Keith, Jack Woods by Dave Whiskeyman, Joanne Debs by Susan Sigan, Dr. Shaw by Lee Webb, Carl Phillips by Neil Boyle, Tom Gilbert by Ed Wallen, Bill Desmond by Steve Bellinger, Commander Smith by Lee Webb, The Reporter in Waukegan by Ray Miller, The BBC Announcer by Jim Keith, Silver Surfer by Dave Whiskeyman, Lady Jane by Pat Berger, The Announcer on the Hancock Building, and The Man in the Supermarket by Ed Wallen.
4: We'll start a new life
0: together. Day of the Martians was produced, directed, and readapted for radio by Steve Bellinger. Original music, Love Me Once, written by George T. Corbis and sung by Teddy Corbis. New Life Together, also written by George T. Corbis and sung by Francesca. Start a new life together, new life on, a new life together, with love. This has been a Stephen A. Bellinger production.